Welcome to a special episode of the Scotland's Choice podcast. I'm actually delighted uh, to be doing this po uh, podcast, which will focus on the role of small countries in tackling global challenges. Our guest tonight will explore how countries like Scotland to work together with others to address issues such as climate change, inequality and poverty. The discussion will be aimed at an international delegation of representatives from youth wings of political parties from around Europe, hosted by the YSI, that's the SNP's youth wing, and I'm delighted to say that the audience is here with us tonight and everyone will listen to the podcast. So without any further ado, let's hear from our guests and find out who we're talking to tonight. I'm Karen Adam, MSP, and I represent Barbershire and Bucking Coast. I also sit on the Equalities, Human Rights and Civil Justice Committee. I also sit on the Rural Affairs and Islands Committee, and I'm a member of the Scottish Parliament's Gender Sensitive Audit Board. My name is Rasmus Embo. I'm uh, the vice leader of the international community in Danish social democratic youth, uh, where I do international policy. But I'm also the president of the Youth Nordic Council, uh, and I sit in the Nordic Council Presidium, so that's the leadership where we deal with defense, foreign policy, etc., in the Nordic countries. And I'm Olaf Sander, I'm the international officer of the YSI. It was originally um, grew up in Poland, but I came to Scotland as a child, and I've been active in the independence movement ever since 2014, since our referendum. I'm a passionate environmentalist and social democrat as well, and organizer of this international conference right here in Edinburgh. Well, thank you all for joining the panel tonight and joining our group here in Edinburgh. Uh, can I start with uh, a really, let's start with a really easy, a, a small question, <laughs> something that, you know, is you'll be able to deal with really easily. Karen, what would you say is the main, major challenge facing the world right now? Well, of course, I'm going to say it's climate. The, the climate crisis is certainly a real one. It's a huge issue globally. And I also think linked into that, though, that food security is one of the biggest issues that we're facing, particularly as a member of the Rural Affairs and Islands Committee. That's something that we see as vitally important over these next few years that we can tie into how we lower our carbon emissions, we tackle the climate crisis, but we do that ensuring we still have food um, and getting certain people from those food producers, land managers, etc., on board to be able to tackle that. Well, I'm going to ask Rasmus in a second if he agrees, but first of all, what are you your thoughts on that? I think climate crisis as well, hands down. I mean, you know, in the end, there's no point fighting for a different planet or for independence if we don't have a planet to live on. So I think it's something that we really have to tackle. But in the end, the climate crisis is caused by other crises, such as the you know broken economic model that we've had, the, the extreme neoliberalism that hasn't been challenged, you know, unchecked capitalism, all of that has led to the worsening of the climate crisis. So I think we have to look at these crises in a sort of united way, uh, in a multifaceted way, but I'd say if I have to pick one existential crisis, definitely climate, for sure. Erasmus? Erasmus. I'm calling you Erasmus. I was thinking of the educational program. Yeah. I do apologize, Erasmus, please. I'm proud to be called Erasmus. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> However, uh, I agree, but I will speak about the fact that all of us sitting here, we are a generation that are for the first time experiencing war in Europe. I'm very concerned for the world order that we will grow up in. Mm. What is it going to look like in 50 years? I think that the West are in deep, deep trouble when it comes to the states that will be uh, regional powers and even global powers in the next 20 or 30 years. That worries me. That, that, yeah. That's quite a sobering uh, thought. Yeah. And, and I know we're going to be talking more about um, 
conflict and your particular situation in Ukraine in a while. But we've got an audience here from uh, around uh, Europe, many representatives of different countries here. Just with a show of hands, um, how many of you feel that climate is the overriding uh, concern that we have just now? So the vast majority. But I'm going to ask how many also agree with Rasmus <laughs> in terms of saying that the conflict is a, a major uh, issue. Again, I think the whole audience pretty much for this, uh, you agree with that. So so there, there, there are kind of twin big main challenges facing us uh, here just now. If we bring it down to, you know, kind of the... the the situation for people in their houses and homes, you know, the, both the climate crisis and the conflict, uh, the, the illegal war in Ukraine, let's call it what it is, the illegal war in Ukraine um, have knock-on effects. So the governmental policies we see in the UK here, policies and decisions made by the UK government, for example, drive up inflation as well as these uh, issues. In light of the rising cost of living in many European countries, what policies and initiatives can small countries pursue to address this issue and ensure that all citizens have access to basic necessities such as food, housing and healthcare reasons? I think that one, if I have to look um, from my experience and from uh, the region of the world that I'm from, one thing that we do quite well is that we have very strong checks and balances. We are good at working together, so minimizing polarization. And that means that when there's a crisis like the COVID, when climate hits, or when we have inflation, we are able to, in our political environment, quite fast hit broad agreements between the parties because we see that it's a necessity mm. that we act and it's a necessity that we do not make policy that might be beneficial for us for the next election but hurt us in terms of, for instance, increasing inflation. So I think that on a structural level, coming together on minimizing polarization and introducing and having strengthening checks and balances in our democratic societies is something that is crucial and where we have, um, we have the possibility of actually doing that in small countries, especially if, like speaking from my own context, if it's a rather homogeneous society, because that means that you can minimize the conflict because of course politics has to be about values. It has to be about which direction to take the country. But when there's something so extreme as what we've seen in the last couple of years, we need to come together and work together. Mm. Olaf, you seem to be agreeing with that. I think a lot of this as well comes from democratizing our decision-making and empowering young people in this. And I think particularly what the, North, uh, what the Nordics do pretty well is uh, local government. Uh, if you look at Norway, for example, Norway has, I think, about 300 local authorities, had the population of Scotland, that's 10 times more than we have. Uh, we have, you know, the Highland Council, which is, I think, the size of Belgium or something like that. It's absolutely huge. Um, and this kind of means that local authorities aren't that accessible. It's quite difficult to change policy and it's quite difficult to get involved because the issues in one part of Highlands are very different to in the other part of Highlands. I'm sure that you know that best <laughs> through as, a, as a Highland MP. So I think democratizing decision-making on the council level, but also democratizing decision-making within our parties, it's really important that, you know, especially we as youth activists, we feel like we're not just, you know, leaflet deliverers and we're not just people that are sort of used to campaigns, but we're actually a, a powerful part of policy making. And I think, you know, initiatives like this conference are an important way of learning from each other on what kind of policies we can bring to Scotland and, and export to other countries as well. Um, 
And I think what Rasmus was saying, they're working together. I think all of that comes part of it. I think we, we live in the interconnected digital age, uh, which comes with its challenges when it comes to social media, when it comes to abuse, when it comes to you know, all the toxicity that we're dealing with, but it also comes with lots of opportunities to cooperate and, and to work together for better policy. Yeah, I, I would say, going back to Olaf, your first answer as well, and talking about capitalism and neoliberal capitalism, capitalism when we're, we're discussing our growth, our economic growth in our countries, we need to change what lens we're looking at that through. And I think, you know, if I look at Nicola Sturgeon, who met with the Prime Minister of Iceland, the Prime Minister yeah. of, well, Jacinda Ardern, who's just recently stepped down, their focus was on a health and well-being economy. Mm -hmm. And I think since that moment, we have taken that on and we're on our trajectory to really embed that into politics in Scotland. And I think if we can work together internationally on those priorities, for example, holding these big global companies to account yes. that are you know, the top 1% of wealth, where is that? Mm. That needs disputed. So we need to be working together focusing on a health and well-being being economy and not just this growth for growth's sake. So I think that's where small countries can come together as um, you know, a, a vocal uh, majority, hopefully, and hold these um, you know, big global corporations to, to account. The energy companies are making millions right now mm. off the back of the energy prices, but we've got people that can't even afford to heat their homes. The, yeah. This is a, a, a point, and I want to ask you a question, uh, Karen, about um, how can Scotland use its position as a potentially in, an independent country to promote international cooperation on the kinds of issues you've just been talking about? I think as an, inter as an independent country, it would certainly free us up from the, the shackles that Brexit has put us under at the moment, for example, opening up to international trade, to having those, like the Erasmus scheme that we have, it's really important to have international relationships so that we can not only join together socially um, cross cultures, interactions, good relationships internationally means a more healthy society and a global society overall. And I think Scotland can do that on its own much better than it can within the UK. We've seen that. I heard a lot of discontent often in my constituency because people didn't like the um, the CFP, which was, you know, the, the fisheries agreement within the EU. Mm. But what I, my argument I put across is that the people that were sitting at the decision-making table within the EU mm. were representatives from the UK mm. government. They weren't representatives from the Scottish government. So having their own voice at those decision-making tables make a huge difference. So well, uh, following on from that, how can the various uh, youth wings, branches of the, uh, the different uh, organisations and European parties work together to engage young people in policy making and, uh, and, and the decision making process to ensure that their voices are heard across the political arena. Well, make them feel that there's a different world to win and make them feel that we're not just imagining a better world that we want to see because a lot of the time we're talking about, you know, the utopia that we want to build, but, but actually make it tangible, right? And, and that means making sure that the, the mother parties that we're, we're part of are actually listening to us, are actually valuing our views. And I think, you know, we, we in the SF, we in the YSI are quite lucky to be in that position. I mean, a former YSI convener was Nicola Sturgeon, who you might have heard of potentially, and uh, John Sweeney as well, and then others. So, so I think, I think, you know, there's always more to do in terms of engaging people into politics. Um, we still have a crisis of participation in politics. I think it's uh, disgraceful that we only have turnouts of, you know, 30, 40% in council elections. 
we have turnouts of you know 65-70% in parliamentary elections. Now that, that means that 30% of people do not vote and that is a crisis of democracy. So I think we have to confront that and face it head on and ask ourselves questions why young people feel like they cannot participate. Um, that means democratizing society from the ground up. That means democratizing our local authorities. That means democratizing our society in general. Um, and, and in general, making people believe that they can be the agents of change as well and not just talk about it. Rasmus, as the only president I've got on the, uh, the table today, uh, as we're talking about, you, you're obviously president of the Nordic Youth Council and a member of the BSU. What lessons can Scotland learn from what you've been able to achieve in Denmark? I think that it's very clear from my experience that including young people in decision-making processes it improves what happens. It improves yeah. the decisions because in my experience, almost all decisions made today are for people with families. You know, it's, it's difficult to speak not from your own reality. And when the majority of politicians are usually somewhere in their 40s, they have a family, etc. That means that there's just perspective that they miss. And we have such a big part of the population that are young people. For instance, during the Corona crisis, uh, there was a lot of issues between Denmark and Sweden where students were completely forgotten. Because we have a lot of Danish people studying abroad in Sweden and etc. And a lot of these students during the, uh, the lockdowns, they stood, they were supposed to study in another country and they lost the opportunity to study, uh, for instance, in Sweden. They couldn't go to the housing that they had there. They lost the student grants that they got. And most of this was simply because you didn't have a young person sitting there in the decision-making process. Yeah. It's not only a, a democratic argument, but it's also an argument for making better policy. Mm -hmm. And I think what we've seen in, in the Nordic Council, for instance, where we've had initiatives about national youth climate councils come through and be voted through at the session, which means that hopefully it will happen in all the Nordic countries. We've had action on climate change. We've had action on improving the culture between the um, having more Nordic culture in the schools. All of these are initiatives that spark from the bright ideas of young people. And that's a clear example of how beneficial it is to improve and to include young people in decision-making processes. So, so what are the barriers to young people having their voices heard in the political arena? Oh, there's a ton of them. Um, <laughs> I think one of the biggest yeah. ones, just for, just for people who can't see the audience here, everybody <laughs> seems to be nodding in agreement. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, there's a ton of them. I think one of the ones that I meet most often is that, oh, but you're not an elected uh, politician. Yeah. You don't have a mandate. Well, I said, when I said in Nordic Council, I represent more than one million young people. I might not be elected through a, a parliamentary election, but all the member organizations that I present or that you present mm -hmm. when you're a member of a, a youth organization, you give a voice to so many people and that really matters. And having politicians recognize that is extremely important. The second one is the reality of being a young person, usually to say directly, you're broke. You don't have too much money. You have to study. And then you're invited to some meeting somewhere. There's no youth inclusion strategy. What are you supposed to say something on? There's no support for you. And you don't get any compensation for going there. You know, these youth inclusion strategies are often lacking, to say the least. Um, 
I like what you're saying there about inclusion. And I think what we've seen in Scotland since the voting age has been 16 up for Scottish Parliament elections and 16 up for local government elections. We've seen a change in how our politics are moving to a more progressive uh, viewpoint. And I think that is because of youth engagement. Um, if we look at what our policy and our laws and our lands looked like before women had the vote and before women ha were able to sit at the decision-making tables, it wasn't a very women-friendly environment. And it's the same for youth and for young people. Yeah, yeah. We need them to be involved in the decision making. During my campaign, when I was campaigning to be elected, I have six children, some are grown adults now, and I would be referring to them to ask their advice. How do I communicate with young people? How do I get them engaged? How are they talking to each other? What's important to you? I used that information and they were maybe getting a bit fed up with me coming and talking to them because they're just wanting to know what they have for their dinner. But when I, um, <clears throat> the penny dropped and I realized that the campaign committee I had were generally over the ages of 40, 50, you know. So I engaged a youth campaign um, committee as part of my campaign and process and I had a lead on that and the information that came back was so helpful to me that it was giving us record youth engagement in a constituency that isn't really known for youth engagement and that was using mediums like TikTok and things like that as well to get that message across um, but we can change platforms and how we do that interactions but that was really beneficial because the person on my youth campaign committee was still at school at the time and she was saying that she had pupils in the school approaching her and saying, I saw Karen Adam, yeah. I've seen her message, I'm going to be voting for her and asking her how do we get involved. So I think we need to be involving young people to start and we've all got a responsibility, us who are already in here, to open that, you know, to, to make sure there's a ladder there when we're reaching and smashing glass ceilings, make sure it's for young people as well as women. And if I can just jump on that as well, because I remember 2014 so vividly when we had the Penis referendum, so many people just turned 16 and knew nothing about politics. Suddenly got involved in this campaign because not only were 16 year olds involved, but also we had something to vote for, right? Mm -hmm. In so many Western elections, so many European elections, or, you know, Scottish elections, you can sometimes people be like, there isn't anything too tangible to look for. And, you know, it's not going to tangibly materially change their life. So, I mean, with a massive event like this, the independence referendum, people really felt stake in the future, really felt like it shaped the society that they weren't built. And, you know, I remember like campaigning in working class schemes in some of the most, you know, private communities in Scotland. I grew up on one in South Edinburgh. And, um, you know, like the, the change in attitude was powerful within just a couple of months. Like people were, went from, hating politicians or not understanding what politics actually does to them to being out of their stores and shutting doors and actually being active because they felt that the future actually belongs to them and mm -hmm. I really want us to get back to that moment with the next independence referendum but we don't have to wait until the next referendum so we can actually build that policy from the ground up Young would have to be at the centre. Right? Well, how much does it uh, grind your gears when you hear people saying that uh, people who are in their late teens or even you know sixteen or above just don't have the experience? They don't have the political nice. They they don't have the the kind of understanding of the world to go and make a, an impact in politics. 
I think it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. If you think about the, the future, it's young people that are going to bear the brunt of the decisions taken by the politicians right now. And you know, the fact is, the average age of our parliament in the UK is 50. The average age of our parliament in Scotland is younger than that. We have one of the youngest cabinets in Europe. We have a first minister than 40. We have a cabinet who's average age of 55, I think. So we're on the right track. But, you know, the patronizing, condescending attitude among so many young people. Uh, it is it's sad and disappointing because young people have come up with some of the most impressive, radical, and bright ideas that this country is enjoying. You know, tuition that was paid for by students, right? That is one of the most successful things we've done under the SMP. Look at free bus travel for young young people that's only two. You know, allowing me to travel all across the country, not having to use a car, got all that freedom. Think about those to 16. Yeah, a really radical, amazing policy that was won for by young people, by young people. I think. You know, you only have to look at the policy records and look at the impact that young people have made, and that's hard. And to add on that, I think that that goes in almost all countries. Competence does not have an age. Yeah. It really doesn't. Your experience as a young person is something that is extremely valuable. If it's 30 years ago that you had that experience, you're less experienced in being a young person. And I can say the same, for instance, in Denmark, there was our youth party, the Danish Social Democratic Youth, that campaigned in order to decrease. Right now, we had a big issue with uh, companies that give out loans with an extreme interest, 300%, 100%, that would indebt people that were already struggling socially. We were the ones campaigning to put a, a limit to that, which became a bill passed in government and everything. And there's so many examples of that, just like all of just like you just mentioned. And I think that goes all around uh, the world where you have structures that give young, competent people uh, uh, an opportunity to enter in politics and decision-making process. You simply get better solutions from doing that. I think as well, what a really good point there with your question there, Drew, is like, there's not a hierarchy in age when it comes to being a human being on this planet, all experiencing life. A two-year-old is a human being in its own way experiencing life. That doesn't mean to say that all children, all young people, all teenagers up to the age, you know, of, of 30s, well, because often, you know, 30s seen as still a bit too immature to be making decisions <laughs> about things, is somehow an adult, an old adult in training. We're going to tell you and train you and educate you in a way that fits how we have been living our lives. Well, it just doesn't cut it because we should be looking to what the progression of education is going to look like. I say to my children, how does school work out for you? How does sitting at a desk, listening to somebody's job, how does that work out for you? Is your learning experience of value to you? That comes from them and their experience. And if we're not given, if we think we know best for them, you're just squashing any kind of ambition or confidence from our young people. So I think ensuring that we have these opportunities, moments of opportunity for young people to step forward. I'm going to um, come away from that subject, important though it is, because um, I, I think we need to talk about the impact on us, on uh, other European countries about Brexit, because it is a big issue. I, I mentioned earlier about decisions of the UK government have driven inflation. That's a 
a, you know, a key aspect of a policy choice that they were in the UK. We've seen uh, particularly food prices go up substantially because of Brexit. So I want to come on to that Brexit thing. But but I think it'd be interesting, Rasmus, to find out how Brexit has been perceived in Denmark. Mm-hmm. And what impact do you think it'll have on the future of the EU? It was for us and for Danish people extremely sad when Brexit happened. And you could see that support of the EU increased quite drastically after Brexit. Um, the UK and the UK has traditionally been an important partner uh, in the EU for us. We have had many of the same reservations, etc. And them leaving the EU was a big loss uh, for us. And it was really something that I think a lot of Danish people took to heart, especially considering how disastrous the process was afterwards. Uh, it reconfirmed for many Danish people how important the EU is, because the EU cannot solve all problems. It, it can't. The EU is extremely important on so many issues, especially considering the topic that we touched on earlier, which is the world order that we're going to face in the next century. That is something where we as small countries need to be in a larger participating organ or we need to cooperate more, especially on foreign and defense policy. There's no alternative. And economically speaking, uh, we are so dependent as well. That being said, we still have some of the same reservations in Denmark like we've always had. But um, support for the EU in Denmark is very high and has been ever since the Brexit. So I'll just come in on that because I was actually in Sweden when Brexit happened. When, when the Brexit happened, that was my Erasmus, right? Uh, Erasmus, my Erasmus. I've got copyright on that. So I was, I just came back from Scotland. I was campaigning. Uh, I was campaigning in Denmark, actually. Three weeks before, and I was like here for three weeks. I was so confident I was going to win. You know, I was, I was there. And working class teams and middle class teams are like the Stockbridge, part of Edinburgh as well. It's like, we're definitely going to smash this. We're going to win this. And then I came back to, uh, to Sweden and I was watching the results. Like, and I was watching it with some of my best friends, one of Estonia, one of Latvia. Uh, you know, small countries that benefit massively from the EU, especially considering the war just now. And we were literally crying at the TV and they were asking me, like, why have you done this? Why, 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 why are they getting the stress? Of the, it wasn't us, right? it wasn't Scotland. Like, we have completely protected this. And look at that map. Like, that entire map is yellow. voted to remain. But, but there is that perception, you know, that, that it's, it's a UK vote and you know, Scotland is somewhat implicated in this. The reason why we're having this conference and the reason why we're engaging internationally blasts that perception into pieces. Scotland is a European nation. Scotland's always been a European nation. Scotland is the European nation despite Brexit. No one's going to take that away from us. And I think it's so, so important that we don't just let misery seep in and we don't just accept it as a given. We actually fight against it. We talk every day about the impact of it. And you know what? More importantly than ever, because Labour and the Tories have given up on it. They've given up on economic reality. They've given up on social reality. And the SNP, the only party right now that's fighting for it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say on Rural Affairs and Islands Committee, we are dealing 
all the time with the implications of Brexit, the impacts upon our farmers, our coastal communities, rural Scotland overall as well, is really extremely damaging. And I can go into the depths of that, but what I really like to touch on here at this moment in time is that if, I, if my granddad was around now to hear what is happening, and we're talking about, you know, a party that is pushing this through that seems to say they stand up for our veterans, etc. I find that absolutely abhorrent. My granddad always spoke about his time in the war. Yep. He spoke about that comradeships. He spoke about the relationships he made with people in Italy, in North Africa. My granddad's best friend was a Polish man that lived across the back garden. They'd stand at that fence, you know, chatting for hours. And he taught me the importance of international relationships and cultivating uh, a knowledge base that is global and that we're not insular. And that was something that he learned through some of the, what he must have seen through the devastating impacts of war. You know, I can't imagine. And for me, that is one of the most damaging impacts of Brexit, is to be so insular-minded. And just speaking from a Nordic perspective, I can say that it is being noticed. Because back when Brexit happened, I think many, many Danish people uh, had that perception, okay, it's the UK that opted out. Uh, but I've seen in the Nordic Council, and where you have politicians from all over the Nordic countries, that Scotland has become a bigger topic. Mm. And among our youth parties, and that's why I think that what's happening here is extremely important, because mm -hmm. many of us living out in Europe, we need to get a better understanding and a more nuanced understanding of the way Scotland is in the world, because it has been a blend together, uh, living as, as a normal European, but I think that's starting to change, and that's why the work that you're doing is so valuable, because it does, it is starting to be noticed. Right. So I, I noticed when we mentioned the word Brexit, um, a few hands in the audience went <laughs> up. They, that clearly was a, a, an urge to participate. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't have a roving microphone to put uh, out into the audience, but perhaps if there is a question that uh, anybody wanted to ask of the panel, I could repeat it for you for the microphone here. If anybody got anything they want to, to add? Nope. Okay. In that case, oh, we've we'll all. Sorry, yeah, we've. Yeah, you said that the EU must approach the new world order in a different way. And nowadays, in terms of increasing the number of uh, countries that are part of the European Union, the uh, European Union is prioritizing countries such as Ukraine and Moldavia over, for example, Scotland or Wales, and even countries like the ones that conform the Western Balkans that have been waiting decades since the early 2000 or the uh, end of the 90s to get into the club. Uh, what is your take on, on this? What's your take about uh, EU expansion and the priorities in the EU? I think is a, 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 a summation of that Look, question. I'll, I'll take it. I, yeah. I think I think Ukraine should be front right? And let's be honest, Ukraine is absolutely facing the worst situation imaginable right now. We couldn't ever imagine ourselves in, in a crisis like this. The bombs on a daily basis. There's there's millions of refugees having to be paid out. Absolutely putting Ukraine at the front of the queue over Scotland any day. And the reason is because they're facing a world way down, right? So, look, I really want Scotland to be in the EU. I really want Catalonia to be in the EU as well. And I really want, uh, you know, every Balkan country that wants to be in the EU that wants to be in the EU, right? I think the EU is that strongest 
went into big block with diverse block. I think small countries are the best when they work together. And just in general, I see a world with more small countries. Because that goes back to the point of democratization as well. Yeah, like that. I think smaller countries are more accessible to this. But I absolutely cannot accept the notion that it's somewhat a competition between, you know, Ukraine and Moldova who are on the front line of a war by an aggressor um, versus other countries that have any that. I'm sorry. Well, we um, we talked at, right at the, the start of this podcast tonight about the main challenges that we're facing uh, the world just now. One of them was the uh, illegal war in Ukraine. The other one was climate change. And I think we should return to that for a bit of further discussion. It, in terms of uh, cooperation um, across Europe, how do we get... Uh, small countries to work together to reduce carbon emissions, promote sustainable development and mitigate the effects of climate change. What can we do as small countries together to achieve those aims? I think that one of the things that we do well in the Nordics is that, for instance, at the Nordic Council, we align policies, we align technologies, and that it creates a better background for uh, for doing things on climate change together. For instance, we are right now focused a lot on India because if we want to change something in small countries, it is through soft power, it is through uh, exporting technology, it is through showing the way forward, uh, going massively in on one area, and then showing that there is a way, uh, for instance, when it comes to carbon emissions tax, or when it comes to windows, or when it comes to water power, which is something that uh, we do quite well, I like to say in the Nordics. And I think as small countries going, going all in in one area and then uh, showing the way for some of the uh, larger markets, uh, that could be uh, Germany, it could be India, it could be the US or whatnot, is, is important. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, <clears throat> also we have the opportunity with conferences uh, and, and things such as COP. And I know that Nicola Sturgeon, you know, was very, um, you know, at the forefront of the Climate Justice Fund, also acknowledging the impacts that climate change has on the global south, that we, uh, the global north, are the biggest emitters of carbon. And it is our responsibility to mitigate a lot of the issues that are happening in other countries around the world. We're going to have a situation where we're going to have climate refugees. What are we doing about that and preparing for that in the here and now? So I think there is space for us to come together and have those conversations but also share innovations yeah. and um, ensure that we have best practice. Um, the Scottish government as well is also trying to keep aligned with the EU on these things. So keeping those conversations open and ensuring that we're not losing track, you know, of where everybody else is. That's a really important focus, I think, for smaller countries as well to band together. There's strengths in numbers. And I think, you know, we do have... a, a a very powerful voice, particularly if we look in Scotland, the potential for our new built energy um, as being one of the global leaders in this. This is something that we could be sharing with other nations. So it's important to have that international relations. And as Karen and Martin said there, I think, you know, managing the climate crisis is absolutely best on the EU left. Right, because it's not a crisis that stops the border in Carolina, it stops the border in Pakistan, anywhere else. It's a global crisis. And I think it's really important that we look at that. No, I think also 
we we shouldn't just speak about the countries that are most affected. We should we should speak with them. Mm -hmm. And that's where the Climate Justice Fund comes comes as part of it. Because Scotland, you know, the small country, we're not independent yet. We have a very limited budget. But what we're doing really well is we're working with places like Malawi, uh, you know, countries in the global south, Bangladesh, most affected by flooding and the extreme weather events. And we're actually asking them, what do they need from us as well? What are their experiences, right? And you're having this experience-led policy making, which is actually how it should be. Because I think a lot of the time we, we kind of apply this, maybe we know best frame, right? Or this Western-centric frame, <laughs> climate change. And especially when it comes to climate justice, which is so closely linked to economic justice as well. You really have to put these countries at the mm -hmm. And actually, young people as well. Because young people are going to be the ones bearing the brunt of climate change for the longest time. So yeah, make it youth-led, but also make it um, developing countries. Mm -hmm. Well, we're coming to the end of our time here in the podcast, but just following up on what you were saying there, uh, Olaf, uh, what uh, concrete examples do we have of um, it, cooperation, uh, successful collaborations across uh, small countries in Europe that have led to positive outcomes for their citizens? So how do we replicate those and build upon them? I think on the well-being economy in particular, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm glad that we have shifted the focus now when mm -hmm. it comes to recovery. We're not just talking about the same old solutions, but actually involving democratizing science and making sure that more of our services are publicly owned. Um, yeah, I mean, if you look at that, you have small countries like Nordics very much involved in that. Malta is a part of it as well. Iceland's a part of it. Obviously, New Zealand and Scotland were kind of the leading lights as well. I think that is really inspiring. Uh, again, every country's got its own intricacies. You know, we in Scotland have a huge renewable energy wealth that maybe other countries don't have, under the have, but um, yeah, that, that's one of them. I think that uh, us smaller countries, we have to, in a, in a larger extent, coordinate before there's principles, COP and other events, because Every once in a while, we see that we might have the same goal, but because of national interests, we end up being fragmented. And we can't really, we can't do anything. We're a lot of small fish in the ocean. And if we want to do anything about the sharks, we need to work together. Like we, we really need to. And it is possible. Uh, and I know that it's practice, for instance, that when it comes to getting a seat in the Security Council in UN, we in the Nordics, we work together in order to get that every once in a while and we rotate. And the same goes when it comes to uh, the Nordic fight that we've had against minimum wage, uh, to name other examples. And I think this way of working together as small countries, establishing institutionalized processes or just practices where we actually coordinate what we do is, is one important way of moving forward because otherwise we don't have anything to say when it comes to the larger powers. We yeah. really need to work together and when we default back to our national interests and our voters, we're not going to have that result. We need those forests and those means and modes of cooperation that we fall back to. Yeah, I think the EU is a great example of this, where countries can come together and have the same stage. Smaller countries can have the same stage as these larger countries and proportionate to population. You know, that's a fantastic thing to have that 
space. So hopefully, when Scotland does become an independent country, we can get back into the EU. But I like your idea as well as having a space for smaller independent countries that we can have come together and have discussions on what's best for our countries. And that's something that we can maybe work towards and, and an idea that we could develop. Health and well-being economy, and I think this takes it, circles it right back to the start. What's the most important thing? So we spoke about, you know, the climate crisis, but also the war in Ukraine, because neither are mutually ex exclusive. The health and well-being economy would encompass both of those things and everything into that, looking at... Um, as well, our, our human rights and core obligations, all ties in our health and well-being economy. And I think if we can focus on that good policy in that area, sharing best practice and having a space to have those discussions, we could potentially see such a huge shift and change globally, you know, um, and that would be something that would be fantastic. Well, talking about huge changes and shifts, I think this has been a tremendous opportunity to be here at the uh, Young Scots for Independence our European Future Conference. I think it's, uh, it's been great to see all of the participants here uh, tonight. Can I thank my guests on the podcast, Olaf, Rasmus and uh, Karen uh, for taking part tonight and to thank the audience that have been here tonight, some of whom have travelled considerable distances to, uh, to be here, not just for the podcast, but uh, I hope you've enjoyed it as well. So uh, thank you very much indeed and thank you again to the panel. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Scotland's Choice. If you want to hear more uh, episodes of Scotland's Choice, please go to scotlandschoice.scot. Speak to you next time.